Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Dolly Chu. Dolly is the Jacob B. Melnick Term Professor at New York University's Stern School of Business. She is also the author of two books, The Person You Mean to Be, and her recently published A More Just Future. Her 2018 TED Talk has been viewed over 4 million times. Dolly began her career in finance, working as an analyst for Morgan Stanley, and then she went to business school at Harvard and went into publishing as a marketing manager for Scholastic. After that, and four years in the human capital consulting business, she briefly returned to financial services, but this time in a leadership development role before returning to Harvard to earn her PhD in organizational behavior and social psychology. She began teaching at NYU in 2005, where she has been ever since. Dolly also devoted a week or two each year over 10 years to work with KIPP, training and developing school leaders in underserved communities. Apart from her dual Harvard degrees, she has a bachelor's degree from Cornell University in economics and psychology. She and her family live in the New York City area. Dolly, welcome. Great to have you on the show today. JR, it is so good to be on the show and so good to be talking to you after so many years. I know a lot of these episodes for me turn out to be like the reunion tour, catching up (laughs) with people that I haven't really connected with in a long time. So let's start. You're a professor at NYU. Talk a little bit about what your area of specialty is. Sure. So I'm a social psychologist with an orientation towards organizational behavior like the class that you and I took in our first year of business school, which was focused on sort of psychology as it relates to the workplace. And I'm a professor at the New York University Stern School of Business. I teach MBA students, management and leadership courses. And then my research focuses on what I call the psychology of good people. And I've written two books, The Person You Mean to Be and A More Just Future. Great. So you grew up mostly in New Jersey. I know you moved around a little bit when you were younger, but you ended up, I think, as a kid kind of settling in New Jersey. When you were in your teenage years, what did you envision yourself doing professionally back then? Yeah. So we lived in West Texas until I was nine, moved every year, never went to the same school more than one year in a row. And then New Jersey. By the time I was a teenager, I don't think I had a solidified view on that. I was and am the kind of person who wishes she had a dozen lives to lead a dozen different paths. Yeah, Because I remember in college, once a month, calling my parents and being like, I think I'm pre-med. And then the next month, I'm like, actually, I think I'm pre-law. And it wasn't because I like lost interest in the other thing. It was because I learned about some new world that existed that I didn't know about and got excited about that. So I could just get excited about a lot of things. Did you ever see yourself potentially becoming a writer back then? 
Well, I never imagined, let me say two things. I wish I could go 24 hours without having the thought, like, my parents were right again. Like, it just seems like they're always right. My mother, when I was a teenager, got me a subscription to Psychology Today, the magazine. I had never asked for that. I don't think I even knew what it was. But she had learned about this magazine and often heard me musing about how people are and why they are the way they are. And said then, I think you would be interested in psychology. Of course, I would go on years later to get a PhD in psychology, but it took me a decade and a half to catch up to where my mom was then. My dad used to bring, before the internet, like it must have been a big deal to go find this book or this journal he found that had like writing contests. It was like a digest of all these writing contests you could enter. And I have no idea how he found it, but he really saw me enjoying writing and felt I was good at it and used to encourage me to enter these writing contests as a kid. And I would like to tell you, I did win the Arbor Day Writers Contest in my town. We got a free tree as a result. So there was something that they saw then about writing and psychology that it turns out many, many, many years later would be the core of my career. Yeah, well, they were right. You were mentioning your mother getting you a subscription to Psychology Today. It sort of brought back to memory. My parents, I think one year for Christmas, I was maybe 11, got me a subscription to National Geographic. And I just remember thinking, these articles are really long. Like it was just immense <laughs> for me. So like, the pictures I, I, are amazing. <laughs> I, yes, the pictures are amazing. I dutifully collected them. I kept them in a closet for years until yeah. I think they finally realized I wasn't reading any of them and it was just a waste oh. of money. Oh, I love that. But they must have sensed in you. I'm imagining your father sensed a curious mind, which look at you right now with a podcast where your curiosity is at the center. A curious mind. Yes. I wrote a little short story when I was in seventh grade and went to a writing conference. What I remember most about that writing conference is meeting Mark Brown, who does Arthur, the aardvark. And uh, I got some custom artwork from him. And then a succession of mean-spirited English teachers just beat the love of the English language oh. right out of me until I was in the cold. So anyway. That's awful. Maybe you'll circle back to it someday if you well, haven't already. I have a little bit already, but Good. nothing like what you're doing. So anyway, did you do any interesting jobs while you were in high school or college? Yeah. I mean, I did all sorts of things. I bust tables at a busy Mexican restaurant in my town. I worked for a temp agency where you would get sent out to different yeah. things. Like one day you were kind too. of, co- yeah, I kind of like that because it was like different yeah. collating brochures manually and data entry. And it was one perfume company where I sort of had to help them organize all the perfume. It was all different stuff. And then I worked as a camp counselor for many years at a camp that I had attended as a kid. And I loved doing that. I think that was the job that I said I would do for free. They wouldn't have to pay me. I would happily do that job for the rest of my life. And now I see elements of that job and what I do now and the teaching part of my job. Yeah. Yeah. I did this. My temp assignments were probably not nearly as interesting. I was at a car dealer. I was doing data entry Mm -hmm. in all of them. Car dealer a company that made extruded plastic materials. I can't remember what specifically a hospital, all sorts of random things. I think the coolest thing is a temp agency, working through a temp agency is usually we only really know the work lives of the adults in our immediate childhood. Yeah. But to suddenly be able to see in the span of a short period of time, all these different workplaces and adult lives. And I don't know, I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Different cultures and what work yeah. feels like in very different yeah. places in probably both. Our yeah. You went to Cornell undergrad. Okay. How did you end up at Morgan Stanley in financial services when you graduated? 
because I didn't have a very specific thing that I had decided I wanted to be when I grew up, and I was interested in a lot of things, when I was a liberal arts psychology and economics double major at Cornell, and when it came time to start thinking about what to do next, we had an on-campus recruiting process that very fortunate to have companies fly all the way to Ithaca, New York, or drive there and yeah. recruit on campus. Honestly, I just put my resume in for everything, like be a buyer at Saks at Fifth Avenue and be a editorial intern at Reader's Digest and go work as a financial analyst in investment banking. And so I put my resume in broadly. I was very fortunate and then I got a lot of interviews and I learned later, much later, decades later, about research that's shown that when someone plays a varsity sport in college, what a leg up it gives them yeah. in the eyes of recruiters, rightly or wrongly, but it somehow stands out in a way. And I played varsity tennis in college. So I think I realize now my grades were okay. I mean, I sort of B plus A minus my way through college, but I did play this varsity sport. So I think as a result, I had a lot of choices. My father, when we moved to New Jersey, it was because he was moving from moving, working at Texaco in the petroleum industry to working in financial services. So I had been exposed to that world. And the analyst programs in investment banks were two years long. They still are in many places, right. Right. meaning you knew the day you started when you would leave. It was a very long summer internship, you might say. You would work 100 hours a week while you were there. You would learn a lot, but then you'd have an exit. And that seemed perfect for someone like me who did not know what she wanted to be when she grew up, but wanted to learn a lot, was willing to work hard, had some exposure to financial services through my father. And I ended up having a lot of options of where to work in financial services and Morgan Stanley. I don't know what it was, but something just resonated with the people and the culture. And so I went for that. How did you like it? I don't regret doing it, but I wouldn't say I enjoyed it. It was really, yeah. really hard work. And yeah. I was pretty sleep deprived for two years. And it was in service of what I knew was not going to be. I figured out very quickly, this was not the life I wanted to lead long term. I wasn't intrinsically that motivated by the work. I was very intrinsically motivated by my colleagues to be a good colleague to them and my managing director. And I wanted to serve clients well, but I worked in the leasing and project finance group and the idea of off-balance sheet financing was just not the kind of thing that got me excited intrinsically. So I'm glad I did it. I learned a lot. I made very, very dear friends amongst my colleagues and I'm also glad to have moved on. When did you decide to think about business school? I think my, my not knowing what I wanted to be when I grew up trend continued into Morgan yeah. Stanley and a lot of people in these analyst programs apply to business schools and go to business schools. And so that seemed like a logical thing to do. I do remember getting into business schools and I remember getting into HBS and telling my parents that I didn't think I was going to go because I just didn't know why I wanted to have a why I wanted to have yeah. a purpose and like what I wanted to be when I grew up. And since I didn't know it, it didn't seem wise to go pursue this degree. And my parents being like, I'm sure they were like inside, like, Oh my God, like panicking, but outside they were like, well, let's talk about this. You know, and of course they wanted me to go. They did not want me to turn away this kind of amazing opportunity that they had never dreamed of having as immigrants to this country. So I ended up going, but feeling perplexed as to why I was going and feeling like, okay, this is the commitment I'm going to make to myself. I'm going to find an industry that I'm a passionate consumer of so that I can get excited about working in it, like about building this industry, because I'm someone who actually is on the receiving end of the industry and really loves it. And so I went into my job search, which began, as you might remember, like two weeks after we arrived, 
they started asking for our resume, I went into it with that mindset and with the mindset that I would not do on-campus recruiting, that I would do an independent job search. So I was sure to broaden my horizons. Interesting. And I know you ended up working for Scholastic. What did you do in between years? Yeah, I worked at Sports Illustrated when Time Inc. owned Sports Illustrated and People and InStyle and Fortune. I decided the industry I was excited about was publishing because I was loved reading. I loved magazines. I loved books. I just wanted to be in that world of publishing. And Time Inc. was a fabulous opportunity. I was very grateful to have. So you weren't there all that long. And then you ended up shifting over into more human capital consulting. Yeah. So I was at, so Sports Illustrated was the summer internship. I had the opportunity to go back afterwards, but by that point, I had also cultivated this relationship with Scholastic, the educational publishing space. And I was really excited about that because that kind of merged two things I was excited about, the publishing side, but also the education side. So I decided to go for that opportunity instead of the Time Inc. opportunity, even though I'd had a great internship at Time Inc. I had planned to stay at Scholastic much longer than I did. We had a family emergency that I was living in New York City, working at Scholastic. The family emergency was taking place in New Jersey. And I rented an apartment in the city and fully intended to live a post-MBA New York City life and instead ended up commuting a lot. And this was a time when we really didn't have the internet and the email the way we do now. Like Commuting was complicated. And so Literally on the train, one of these many train rides, I was very sleep deprived, just trying to deal with all the pulls in my life at that moment. And I remember kind of like almost falling asleep. And then I hear someone say, Dolly? And I look up and I don't know, you might have known her. She goes by Kim Keating. She was Kim Minton when I first met her. Kim Minton was in my analyst class at Morgan Stanley and also was at HBS, though a year, I think, behind us. So we had crossed paths multiple times in our lives. And now here again on a New Jersey transit train, we had run into each other and we had lost track of what each of us was doing. Well, guess what? It turned out she had this job she loved in human capital consulting just miles from my parents' home and Mm -hmm. was just going into the city to see friends. And I was commuting for my job. And I was like, wait, tell me about this job. Yeah, I didn't do a single consulting interview in business school. And that was by design because I had made a choice to not go into professional services and again, wanted to work in an industry where I was a passionate consumer. But this was a circumstance where I was very interested in being closer to my family and having that flexibility. And she said, I would love to introduce you to some people. And she did. The company at the time was called Sibson. And I ended up going to work there. It was an amazing five years. I'm so grateful that I ran into Kim that day on the train. Yeah, that's a serendipitous conversation. It was one, right? Ever. Yeah. And after that, I know you went back, doubled down on Harvard, went back to get your PhD. (laughs) How did you decide to pursue a PhD and why the particular areas that you chose? Yeah. Well, I don't remember specifically if you were in the room, but the way we're going to tell this story, you were in the room when I made the decision, actually. It was our fifth year MBA reunion. Yeah. Remember that was in 1999 with the internet like going wild. And I was really dreading going to that reunion. Like I'm the kind of person who goes to reunions, who like shows up to the things. I'm just like that kind of person. But I really didn't want to go to this reunion. And it wasn't that I like was so upset with my life, but it just didn't feel like we were hearing about all these classmates doing these sexy things. And I was single and I didn't want to be single. And I just felt like even though I'm not an envious person, I was going to feel envious there. I mean, like the envious side of me was going to come out. Yeah. And I didn't want to go, but I made myself go because I go to things. And what ended up happening was 
that first day where you're more interacting with your classmates, I actually was really enjoying the conversations. Like it was fascinating to hear all these internet thing that people were doing or the World Wide Web, maybe we were calling it at the time. But I wasn't feeling this, oh, I should be doing it. Like I wasn't feeling the envy takeover the way I thought it would. And then the second day rolled around that Saturday where we go to the research presentations that the faculty did. And that's the day when suddenly I felt envious, the faculty of all people. And I will be honest, when we were MBA students, I don't think I really realized they were doing research. I thought they were so good in the classroom and seemed to know us so well. And I just had the sense that they spent all day, every day thinking about us. (laughs) I did not realize that they went back to their office and collected data and ran experiments and wrote papers at peer-reviewed journals. I had no idea. I didn't really know any professors in my life at that point either. And so when we went to that second day of the reunion and saw them present their research, I was just blown away. I was like, wait, someone pays them to do this? To think of what they find interesting and curious and then go learn more about it and then write it down and share it with other people? I mean, I'm oversimplifying it dramatically, but at the time, that's what it looked like to me. And I was just blown away. I was like, I should have been a professor. Like, I've totally missed the boat on this. Yeah. It would take about another year and a half before that notion, which at the time, it was like, well, I also should have been a rock star. I should have been Madonna. Like, it seemed that realistic, like unrealistic, like good for you that you thought you should have been a professor. So the notion hit me in 99. But then over the next sort of 12 to 18 months, these little serendipitous things kept happening. And in each of those serendipitous things, which probably were happening all along, I just wasn't noticing them. I was learning more about the world of being a professor and it dispelled a few myths that I had, which one, I thought you had to be like a rocket scientist genius to be a professor, because that's how I saw all my professors. I'm not a rocket science genius. I'm sort of above average, intelligent and very hardworking. It turns out that's good enough (laughs) for my line of work. And I also thought business school had been expensive and I thought it would be like five more years of tuition like business school tuition. But I learned that at least for the kinds of programs I was looking at, organizational behavior, they actually pay you to go to school. You get paid a stipend. It's not much. It's like $30,000. And I was making a lot more than that, but it wasn't the same as paying tuition. So those myths got dispelled as I had these serendipitous conversations with people. And I got to the point where I was like, you know what, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to, in my, at age 33, start over and go get a PhD. Sure. Your parents were probably having another one of those internal (laughs) nervous conversations then too. They were, they were so worried and I just feel for them. And now that I'm a parent, I'm like, oh my gosh, that lack of control over what's happening and giving up a sure thing for this, who knows what's going to come of this. And they were very supportive and very worried. Yeah. Well, it's obviously worked out. So you've been a professor for, I think, what, 17 years now? About that. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you like and what do you not like about it? You've been doing it a long time. And I know you're in a New York University studio. So this is a little bit unfair to ask you when, uh, you know, you at work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is a wonderful studio that Bob Kerr, who is a producer in the news world before he came to NYU, has set up for us. And it really helps us have these conversations in a way that gives you good, hopefully good sound and video quality. There's many things I like, and there's many things I don't, to be honest. I love my students. I love teaching. I love research in the purest sense of like the piece I loved at the beginning of like, what are you interested in? How can you create knowledge by 
collecting data or analyzing data that helps shed light on something that could be useful to people in the real world. I love that part. And I love my colleagues in an amazing department with really wonderful colleagues. But what I don't love about it is the system of higher education I don't love. And this is not specific to NYU, though NYU is certainly in the same position as a lot of other institutions. I personally think that teaching and research should be sort of equal in importance. And in research universities, that's not true. Many professors are deeply committed to teaching and are amazing teachers, but the system isn't generating that as much as people's individual commitment to the students or their just love of that work. It's a system that seems to perpetuate itself. Like there's a lot of things if we were building a university today, I think some pieces we would do differently, but it is this system, faculty are tenured, like it's just hard to make change in higher ed. And so those pieces of it are frustrating. And then I would say the last thing, and this isn't a comment on the system of higher ed. This is a comment on my preferences. I have also really gotten more interested in speaking to general audiences through my book writing, through my newsletter. I have a TED Talk. I really value doing that. It's totally appropriate that some universities care about that and some universities don't, but it's become increasingly important to me that be part of how I spend my days. And so that's something I'm trying to figure out how to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah. Let's talk about your book. The second one, the one that was just released, The More Just Future. Congratulations on getting that published on top of your prior one. That's awesome. Give our audience an overview. Well, More Just Future It's a book that I wrote because I felt like I needed to read it, honestly. I've been grappling with my emotional relationship with my country, the United States of America, this country I deeply love, and then having moments where I'm not sure what to think about learning that my forefathers of the country enslaved humans or learning about when I read the Little House on the Prairie series to my kids, which I spent a whole year doing, and then went on vacation and took them to all the places, realizing sort of late in the game of doing that, that I'd forgotten to really teach my kids about how that land was Native American land. And I really didn't know how to talk about it. And like these little moments, it's like, I felt like I was grappling with the Instagrammed version of my country was what I'd been taught. And I wanted to learn the real story. But every time I tried, these emotions would come up of shame or guilt or disbelief or anger. And I would just shut down. And so I'm not a historian, to be completely transparent, not a historian. I'm really not even a history buff, if I'm totally honest. But I am a psychologist. I do think about what is our relationship to other people? Why do we behave the way we do? And our emotional relationship with our country feels like it can be helped with the tools of psychology. And so that's why I wrote this book. You started it in 2019. So before George Floyd was murdered before everything that's happened since then. So what was the catalyst for you to write the book? That the incident with the Little House in the Prairie and my children, that happened about 10 years ago. And I've been thinking about it for the past decade. There was some unlearning I needed to do and I didn't know how to do it. So I didn't do it. And then I just laid it in the lap of my kids. And so over the last decade, I feel like I've time and time again had moments like that. But it's not a parenting book specifically, but that was something very personally motivating to me. After I wrote my first book, which came out in 2018, I knew I wanted to write another one because I really appreciated and enjoyed the process of writing and the process of seeing readers discover the book and tell me how, I mean, I don't use this term loosely, but like some readers would talk about how life-changing it was. So I wanted to do that again. 
but I didn't know what I wanted to write about. So I still do a lot of reading print newspapers. I like tear out articles when they're interesting to me. So I decided to go like look on my desk at all the torn out articles that, by the way, I'm tearing them out so I will read them someday. Someday never comes, but at least they're on my desk. I decided to like look if there were any themes in the torn out articles or some were printed out as well. And it turned out there was this pretty big pile of articles that were things like so-and-so university is debating whether to rename a dormitory because it's named after somebody who was a leader in the slave trade. Yeah. Or so a team is just trying to figure out what their mascot should be. They've always had a mascot that sort of demonizes Native Americans or it was like our current events were really historical events. And I had a big pile of those stories. And so that said to me, like, there's something I'm stewing on and confused by and looking for guidance on and interested in. And there's something the general public is interested in. Like, there's a reason why the New York Times keeps publishing these stories mm -hmm. and the Wall Street Journal and all these other outlets. So I started playing with this idea. And when I went to... My agent, Leela Campoli, she got it immediately. Same with my first book. She got the idea immediately. She was excited for us to put a proposal together. When we went out to the publishing industry, we actually got a lot of interest in me writing another book, but not a lot of interest in me writing the book I was proposing. Yeah. You know, I remember some people being like, oh, but here are three other things you could write about. We would love to work with you on those things. I just don't think people are thinking too much about the land, like whose yeah. land this was or... And I was sure that wasn't true because by that point, I had really started tuning in because I had seen that pile of newspaper articles. I started really tuning into these conversations. I saw young people having them. I saw them happening on social media. I saw them happening in our policies and our laws. It was happening everywhere from what I could see. Maybe it hadn't become the national conversation yet, but I knew it was coming. I was, I'm a very risk averse person. There was no doubt in my mind this was going to be a national conversation and my book was going to speak to it. Mm. So I felt very confident. Thankfully, Stephanie Hitchcock, who was the editor on my first book, she jumped in to work with me on the second one and also saw that it was a conversation that was coming. That was 2019 when we signed the book deal with Simon and Schuster. And of course, by 2020, 2021, this was a national conversation. But it's a divisive one, right? I mean, I know you were a little bit nervous. You talk in the prologue, I think, of the book about lying awake at night, worrying about whether you were doing the right thing and writing this book. What's been the reaction so far? So like it went from a conversation that maybe wasn't as much in the spotlight to being suddenly in the spotlight and yeah. suddenly critical race theory, which was a term I knew in 2019 because I'm an academic, but really only academics knew that term then. And suddenly it was a household word and it really wasn't being used accurately. And so suddenly it was part of this conversation that felt very explosive and I wasn't looking to be part of an explosive conversation, to be honest. So that's what was keeping me awake at night. The reaction has been so far, and it's early days right now, but incredibly positive, like more positive than I expected from readers. And I think it's because the way I was grappling and searching for a path into thinking about these issues and just needing like solid ground to do it. I think a lot of people are doing the same thing. And so this book, it offers seven psychological tools for how to engage with the past. So it's like a great companion or prequel or sequel to like, if you're thinking about how your family celebrates Thanksgiving and like you're hearing Thanksgiving isn't what you thought it was in terms of its historical roots or right. someone's, you're wondering why Columbus Day is being called Indigenous Peoples Day 
or you didn't know the GI Bill was primarily for white veterans and not black veterans. And now someone's saying that and you're like, wait, what? Or you're hearing about Juneteenth, like all of these moments of discomfort and confusion for some of us, there are psychological tools that can help us. Yeah. You talked in the beginning about just the love you have for the country. And I think it really coming out of World War II, from there on in, it was like America is the best country in the world. And we are in the heart of the Cold War. So there was an ideological component of that Cold War. So you have whole generations of people who are really brought up with a very ultimately biased view of American history. And some people are obviously really struggling to come to terms with that now that there's more discussion on it. And I guess it'd be great. You're a social psychologist. I mean, why do you think people struggle so much to come to terms with America's past and the good and the bad of it? Absolutely. And I'm in this group that struggles. So I speak with empathy. There's two elements of it. One is that some of the narratives we learned were partial, incomplete, sometimes not even fully true narratives. Yep. So it's hard to unlearn things. There's lots of research that says it's easier to learn something than unlearn and relearn something. That's intuitive. A lot of us have experienced that in many aspects of our lives. So I think that's one part of it. But the other part of it is nostalgia. Now, nostalgia is like mm. the most seductive thing ever. You know, there's billion dollar industries built off of nostalgia, fashion, tourism, music, like nostalgia, the research says, gives us a sense of belonging. It yeah. makes us feel more interpersonally competent. Like we can interact with people more effectively. Like it really makes us feel good. And so our nostalgic narratives tend to be positive. And some of the narratives that we're learning now puncture that nostalgia and that feels awful. So it's not just unlearning. It's like an identity I care about that has some nostalgia, whether it's my ancestors or my town, my state, my school. There is a narrative that I love about that's being flattened with what I'm learning. So we resist both the things. We resist the unlearning. We resist things that are nostalgia busters. And that puts us in a tough position when someone says, well, actually, there's some things that maybe you didn't hear. I didn't know that. I didn't know that many of our forefathers enslaved other people while they were writing those documents about equality and liberty and justice for all. I did not know that until a few years ago. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't something I should have read once, maybe, but it definitely wasn't like the headline of mm. how we talk about our country. You focus primarily about the United States in your book. Do you think the United States is unique in having these kind of challenges of coming to terms with its past? Yeah. So I'm not, I, I don't feel super well equipped to comment on that because I, I don't think I really done a deep enough dive into other countries. I do in my book talk about South Africa and Germany a bit and what I've learned about their grappling with their own history and right. some similarities and differences between how it's emerging in their countries and ours. We definitely see in that comparison, like in Germany, there's more physical markers than we seem to have in public places of atrocities that took place there. And so I don't know that we're better or worse, but I definitely, it is possible. Like you said, the greatest country on earth. I grew up in a home where we still talk about this country as the greatest country on earth. Like I, that will always be true. That's the narrative in my head. Both things can be true. This could be the greatest country on earth, matter of opinion, but let's go with it. And it could also be true that there are some very horrible things that yeah. have happened in this country and may have even contributed to some of the ways in which we have called ourselves the greatest country on earth. Yeah. And you know, that concept of both and rather than either. Yes. Or, I mean, for me, 
That's the thing I keep thinking about having finished the book a week or so ago, because it really applies. But if you can accept that your country's history, if you can accept that the person that you're friends with or your family member or whoever, that there are both good and bad attributes to everybody, right? Yes. You accept it. I mean, it, it allows you almost to sort of suspend judgment. You don't have to declare somebody as good or bad. Everybody's both to varying degrees, but they're both. And I think that concept in the book, like I said, that was the thing I most took away. I love that. And the book, Both And Thinking, which I draw from considerably in my book, that research is by Wendy Smith, Marianne Lewis, and others. Their book came out earlier this year. That has been life-changing for me, quite frankly, that way of thinking of just... And the research says that when we do allow ourselves, like you just said, to allow two contradictory things to be true at the same time, we experience greater resilience. We're able to sort of push through setbacks. We experience greater creativity. We're able to sort of see solutions around us, maybe because our bandwidth is released from trying to like resolve this contradiction to just being able to focus on other things. Mentally, basically, our brains loosen up and open up when we activate what they call a paradox mindset. Yeah, which is an important concept. I'm curious to hear, this is a career-focused podcast. Most of the discussions are about career journeys and related topics. How do you feel the lessons from the book in terms of reflecting on history? How can people apply those in the way they think about their professional lives, their the organizations they work in, the careers of ethnic groups who've been affected by some of these things over the years. I'll say everything that's happened in America since the first settlers landed, just to make it very How can you take this into the work world? Well, I think every organization right now is either genuinely or performatively or something in between talking about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So Being able to engage in a meaningful way on these topics, I think, is sort of now part of everyone's job description to some extent. What I'm seeing, because I teach MBAs, most of them are in their 20s or 30s. And what I'm seeing in that generation of MBAs is a clear expectation amongst many of them that managers and leaders need to be able to engage meaningfully on these issues not just DEI, but on societal issues. There's been studies that have also shown this, that we're expecting more out of leaders, out of CEOs, in terms of multiple stakeholders as opposed to purely shareholders. So I think the more tools we have in our toolkits to do that, the better. And so for people navigating careers right now, there's part of it is like, let's begin by knowing what not to do, building some awareness there, and then maybe add some tools to our toolkit on how to support the kind of values that maybe we're bringing in, but don't know how to manifest and all of these. And then lastly, I'll say I teach a class. This is not the title of the class, but in my head is what I call it is basically how to be a great boss. And by the end of the semester, the punchline is it's not a course about DEI at all. But the punchline by the time you get to the end of the course is if you're not an inclusive boss, you're not a great boss. If you're not an inclusive boss, you're only a great boss to a few people, not to everybody. And so if anybody who has any aspirations towards on their career, going down the managerial or leadership path, this is a really important set of skills and tools. Yeah. And work, like pretty much any institution, is stacked in favor of a certain population. I mean, some companies do a better job of overcoming that, but on balance, the work world has been skewed in favor of white men. And even today, we're trying hard, but we're not there yet in terms of creating 
true equality. And so the way to think about it, I can't make up for the things that happened in the 1960s in the Mad Men era, all of the bad behavior that happened 50, 60 years ago. But you can at least be sensitive to the fact that even though it was 50, 60 years ago, the things that it resulted in are still kind of relevant today. I mean, it's still having an impact even a couple generations later. And you've really got to work hard. I think empathy certainly is after your, what makes a great leader. I mean, being empathetic to the fact that the work world even today is not an even playing field and doing your level best to make it an even playing field is, I guess, what all of us can be thinking about doing. Yeah. Well said. I can't remember if it was in the advice trap or the coaching habit, but one of Michael Bungay Stanier's books, he talks about the weight rule, the why am I talking rule? which I find really useful in so many domains in my life. That's that's Um, a good good acronym. It's a good acronym. My students love it as well, but I think it's a good one in navigating one's career as well. There's spaces where it makes sense to just listen. Yeah, absolutely. So this is your second book. Your first one was much more focused on being a good person, I think is the easiest way to describe it. You were a professor toiling away, working hard, teaching your students, you published that book and all of a sudden you had kind of a coming out moment. You were on <laughs> TV and being interviewed in all these different places. What was that like for you back then? It's a little exciting and a little scary. And then it also kind of comes and goes pretty quickly. It's amazing like how quickly people's attention move on to other things. Yeah, which has to be a little bit of a letdown when it starts to happen, right? Both actually. Yes. I mean, who doesn't like validation? I mean, I love the validation and the attention of it. But then on the other hand, I don't know, like, especially I'm an introvert and there's a level of sort of engagement, especially with social media that's expected. Yeah. Like when you write a book, I think what a lot of people don't realize is writing a book is 50% writing and 50% marketing your book. And yeah. that's expected even if you're at the biggest publishing companies. You know, my first book was HarperCollins. My second was Simon & Schuster. But it's pretty standard that authors, I think of myself almost as an entrepreneur out there hustling, marketing my book. And a lot of that doesn't have to be, but the easiest way to do that is social media. But that kind of engagement, I also find it's like a party. It's like fun for a while. And then I want to go home and I'm exhausted. And so I'm very grateful for the opportunities and visibility I have. And at the same time, I'm also grateful that I'm not like, quote unquote, famous. I think my work is visible in certain circles. Yeah. But I'm not like a lot of people don't know who I am. Most people don't know who I am. And that's perfectly fine with me. Yeah. It's, I guess, good to have a sense of accomplishment without it necessarily running away from you, which obviously who achieve a high level of fame. You took that book and translated it into your Dear Good People newsletter that you put out. How is that following built over the years? Yeah. For a while, my editor, my agent, like just readers had sort of suggested I should do something like that. And I was resisting it, honestly. I was just like, who needs another email in their inbox? And I, nor could I really figure out what I'd be saying in this newsletter. And then after George Floyd was murdered, I suddenly felt like I had things to say. And so I decided to go ahead and start in June 2020. And it's definitely been a labor of love and become one of my favorite things I do every month. Because I think the newsletter idea, when I originally heard about it, sounded like something inauthentic and forced and businessy, kind of marketing-ish. But the newsletter I put out every month is genuinely coming from what I'm thinking about right now, what I'm wrestling with, 
what I'm having fun with. I'm still doing Wordle every day with my husband, but like when I was really obsessed with Wordle, like in January 2022, I think it was, I did one of my issues was about Wordle and why DEI efforts are not like Wordle. We love Wordle because it's bounded and simplistic, not simple, but simplistic. It has a clear right or wrong answer. It has a beginning, middle and end. That all feels good. That is not what DEI efforts feel like. And so I yeah. use like Wordle as a way to sort of talk about that difference. Or right now I'm obsessed with pickleball. So I've used the fable of where pickleball got its name to talk about racial fables and how they sometimes set us up to misunderstand the world we live in. I'm able to take what's happening in my life. My puppy shows up pretty often. I'm able to take what's happening in my life. And I think what's relatable for a lot of people and in the zeitgeist and yeah. connect it to the DEI for it. So it's gone from being something I felt like I had to do obligatory yeah. to being something I felt like I had something to say to now just being something where I feel this incredible connection to the readers. Like I get lots of very nice notes afterwards and it's just been an incredible community we've built. One thing I guess I've found with some of the short form writing that I do is it gives you a chance to put into words, as you say, something you're thinking about right then and there that sometimes forms the kernel of an idea that turns into something bigger over time. Yeah, and that's, that's a great insight. I like being able to go back to some of those things and saying, here's the this long version of it. I'm not going to expand on that concept and make it into something bigger. Some of them, they're whimsical ideas, right? They never right. go past that point, but some of them actually turn into bigger ideas that stick with me. And that part I find helpful. I love that. I love sort of process, like seeing how ideas form or writing develops draft over draft. And what you just said is so cool. Yeah. So I have a lot more work to do on this front, though. I have not published any books. So you're busy. Want to be mindful of time. You're doing a lot of different things. What do you do to recharge? Yeah. Well, pickleball lately. Pickleball <laughs> lately. Really and the puppy. Yeah. Yeah. And the puppy. And the, well, the puppy sometimes recharges me and sometimes he exhausts me, but he's cute mm. no matter what. Yeah, do. I love to read. That's something that's important to me. I don't love to exercise, but I do think it helps me. And so therefore, I guess it's part of the recharging effort. And then I spend time with my family, which my husband and I, we go on walks, we see shows, we watch sports together. My kids are teenagers, so it varies what they're interested in doing with me. But like yeah. when they are kind of engaged in the same things, same activities, that's fun. Yeah, those are the crux of it. Last question. We haven't really focused a whole lot on career lessons. What would you want people who are listening or watching to take away from our discussion in terms of the things that you've learned over the years that you feel like the most valuable career lessons that you've gained over the years? Yeah, I'm hoping the discussion we've had about my trajectory sort of offers one possible path, which is that you don't have to know right away what you want to be when you grow up. I clearly didn't for a long time. I'm still not sure I do. I still, I'm 54 and I'm not sure this is my last career. So I think not all of us have, my parents did not have the luxury to make those kinds of changes in their lives. And I do. If you have that luxury, I think one should take it seriously. I don't see any reason to feel dead inside or unhappy doing what you're doing. I don't think you and I had the same professor first year for organizational behavior, but Jack Cabarro was mm -hmm. my professor. And I remember him saying to us that we should all have go to hell money. Right. And that was when I became a professor, I actually pulled some folks in my section. I was like, okay, so what do you remember from business school? Which I'd make sure my students know. Yeah. And go to hell money was probably the most popular concept that came up. And that, of course, is referring to the idea that 
within whatever constraints you have. You may have caregiving responsibilities that cost money. You may have student debt. There may be a variety of reasons why you don't have excess money. But within whatever discretionary funds you have to think about not locking yourself into a lifestyle that forces you to stay in positions you don't want to be in, jobs you don't want to be in, bosses you don't want to work for, practices you don't want to endorse, to be in a position that you can say, I'm out and walk away. I certainly remember that as well. I've thought about it a lot over the years, as I'm sure we all have. And to me, the corollary of that is just avoid the golden handcuff situations, right? Because you get into some jobs that have a lot of deferred comp and it's like you leave and you're walking away from so much money and you just think, I can't do that. And so you stay and you stay. And at the end of the day, people would all be better off if they could be where they're like happiest and most engaged. And I understand the concept of deferred compensation at the same time. I think I've been in companies where I think it's actually worked against them because it creates Mm. kind of a zombie class. That's so interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, look, I told you we'd keep this to an hour, so I'm going to be good to my word. It was great catching up. It's been a fun conversation and I appreciate the time. Thank you, JR. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And I hope the book continues to have good success. I look forward to seeing it on the bookshelves and on the bestseller list. So, (laughs) Well, it's already on the bookshelves. We'll see about the bestseller list. I know, but I have to go out looking for it on the bookshelves. So (gasps) That's true. That's true. Well, I enjoy doing that. I walk into bookstores and say, would you like me to sign my book for you? And they always say yes. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, hey, take care of yourself. Thanks, dear. All right. Thanks, Dolly. Take care. I'd like to thank Dolly for joining me today and sharing her journey. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.